Hello, listeners. Welcome to another episode of Beyond Fear, the Sex Crimes podcast. Before we dive into today's episode, we have a special announcement. The final episode of the season will be dedicated to answering questions from our listeners. So if you have questions about the topics we have covered or about us, please send them to beyondfearpodcast at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you. As always, we recognize that the topics covered in this episode may be challenging for some of you. Please take care of yourselves. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Beyond Fear. Welcome to Beyond Fear, the Sex Crimes Podcast. Today, we have a really special episode with a panel of four esteemed guests as we talk about sexual harm in faith-based institutions. Nadia Mohajir and Dr. Mariam Mahmoud, Dr. Gila Benchamal, and the Reverend Dr. Danielle Tuminio Hansen. This is going to be a deeply rich conversation on how sexual harm impacts faith communities, what we know about it, and what we can do to prevent it. Our guests today represent different faiths and perspectives, but I think share a vision where sexual harm does not happen in our faith communities. Again, we recognize that this topic may be difficult for some of you. Please remember that you can always turn the episode off and listen later, or even listen with a friend. My name is Dr. Alyssa Ackerman. And I am Dr. Alexa Sardina. Welcome to another episode of Beyond Fear. Nadia Mohajir is a lifelong Chicagoan, Pakistani-American Muslim, mother of three, public health professional, reproductive justice activist, sexual assault advocate. She is the co-founder and co-executive director for Heart Women and Girls. For over a decade, she has led the organization to provide sexual health education and sexual violence awareness programming and advocacy to thousands of individuals, organizations, and campuses across the country. Hart has broken many cultural barriers, raising awareness and advocating for important issues such as sexual and reproductive health, sexual violence, and media literacy. Hart ultimately aims to dismantle the stigma, silence, and systems that prevent individuals from seeking information, healing, and justice. Nadia has worked in public health and reproductive justice for over 20 years in a variety of settings, including but not limited to research, academics, policy, and community health. Her past work includes projects such as redesigning teen pregnancy programs, improving pregnancy outcomes in low-income communities in Chicago, running sex education programming for vulnerable youth, and evaluating innovative cross-sector partnerships in public health. She earned her master's degree in public health in 2009 from the University of Illinois at Chicago and her bachelor's degree in public policy studies from the University of Chicago. Nadia has also participated in a number of fellowships, including the American Muslim Civic Leadership Institute. She's a recipient of the Women's Innovation Fund and most recently was selected to participate in Novo Foundation's Move to End Violence program. 
She is also the recipient of numerous awards, including the 2018 Chicago Foundation for Women's Impact Award and the El Hebri Foundation's Community Builder Award. In the past, she has served on the Executive Board of Directors for the National Women's Health Network. Most recently, she co-authored the first edition of The Sex Talk, A Muslim's Guide to Healthy Sex and Relationships. Dr. Maryam Mahmood is a pracademic, or a practical academic, whose work sits at the interface between academia, grassroots, and policy. Her professional pursuits transcend the ivory towers with the aim to harness the power of positive social impact. Through her decade-long academic career, Mariam has been at the forefront of providing training to international diplomats and NGO leaders, and her students have included some of the UK's most eminent religious officials. Mariam is also the founding director of The Shift, Social Harmony, Intercultural, and Faith Training Organization, where she facilitates pan-sector partnerships and provides consultancy, advisory, and ethical leadership training to enhance religious and cultural literacy and tackle spiritual abuse, gender-based violence, and racism. She is a trustee of the Women's Interfaith Network in the UK. Mariam holds a PhD in war studies from King's College London, as well as a master's degree in South Asia and global security. Dr. Gila Benchamol is a researcher, educator, consultant, and victim advocate. She is the Senior Advisor on Research and Learning with the SRE Network and was one of the key advisors who guided its launch in early 2018. Gila has crafted standards and policies for Jewish workplaces, institutions, and communal spaces and has been invited to address Jewish professionals and clergy across Canada and the U.S., as well as other faith communities. Gila also sits on the board of the Survivors Network of Those Abused by Priests, or SNAP, and is a research associate at the Center for the Study of Social and Legal Response to Violence, where she has worked on projects related to homicide and domestic violence deaths. Her first career as a Jewish educator informed her understanding of the needs to address victimization of all kinds in Jewish communities. Gila holds a PhD in sociological criminology and an MA in criminology and criminal justice policy from the University of Guelph and is a trained restorative and transformative justice facilitator. Gila lives in Toronto, Ontario. The Reverend Dr. Danielle Tuminio Hansen is a professor at Emory University and ordained Episcopal priest. She has written several books and multiple articles on the intersection of religion and public life, often focusing on issues related to trauma and women's lives. Her editorials have appeared on international outlets, including CNN and The Guardian, and she has been a guest on national and international news outlets. Her current research focuses on sexual violations and restorative justice. And wow, what an amazing group of women we have here today to talk to us. Thank you all so much for agreeing to Beyond Beyond Fear. Sexual harm in religious spaces is uh, has been something that I've been really interested in for most of my career. Um, the first study I've ever worked on when I was in graduate school, was on sexual abuse in the Catholic Church. And more, more recently, I've been doing work in the Jewish world, in synagogues and within Jewish organizations, alongside one of our guests today, Dr. Gila Benchamol. So for me, and perhaps for all of you, this work is both my professional work, but it's deeply personal to me too, as a Jewish person. So I'm wondering if you could each talk a little about what brought you to this work, whether that be research, 
practice, advocacy, or any combination of these things, and perhaps tell our listeners a little bit more about who you are. I mean, your bios are amazing, but you're each so much more than the words that we read. So I'll turn it over to all of you, and any of you can speak first. We can go in alphabetical order if that that makes it easier. (laughs) (laughs) Do you want to go ahead first? Okay, fine, I'll go. And then after hearing everybody (laughs) speak, I'll remember everything that I didn't get to say. So thank you so much for having me. And I'm honored to be in this company. I feel like a a little ant among giants. I really am honored to be here. Um, And honored by each of your dedication to do this work in your communities with the knowledge of how hard it is to do controversial things in our own spaces and to ask our communities to look in the mirror and ask some hard questions and what it does to ourselves as people of faith. So I'm Gila Benchamal. I live in Toronto. Um, As you noted in my bio, I was a Jewish educator for over 11 years. And if you would have asked me years ago, um, I would have said, I'm going to live and die as a Jewish educator. I was very committed to Jewish teaching, to teaching Torah texts, to understanding our community through that lens. Um, But because of my own experiences and the experiences of my students and their families and my campers, et cetera, I decided that I wanted to do something different. I knew I could teach Torah. I didn't know if I knew how to go to school or what I would want to do. So at the ripe old age of 29, as a single parent at the time, I started undergraduate school. I had no idea what I was doing. I had never been to university. I didn't know about the application process. Um, And I decided to study criminology, not thinking about my community, just decided to study criminology. But as I started studying criminology, I had this different lens with which to look at my own community. And for example, when I learned about restorative justice for the first time and acknowledging its indigenous roots, I asked myself, this is a model of teshuva, of return that we talk about in the Torah. Why aren't we using it in the community? Or I saw how silence is built in communities around certain crimes like sexual violence. And I looked at my community and I said, wow, these sociological and criminological theories that I'm looking at and learning about for the first time actually happen, right? And it's not because of my experiences that I went to school. It's that going to school gave me the language to name my own experiences and to name the experiences of people that came to me and say, this has a name. You are not alone. This actually has a solution. And there's lots of communities trying to grapple with these really difficult questions. And there are models outside of the Jewish community that we can bring and we can learn from. Um, But really what then brought my Judaism, who I was, and my criminological background together was the murder of a little boy in the Orthodox community in New York in 2011 by an Orthodox man. And that's obviously a very rare crime in our community. And I was taken by that crime and um, I decided to study it for two years. And my question was, what did this crime allow the community to finally talk about? And did the community agree or disagree about those conversations and about some of the solutions that were being put forward? And that is the entry into how I got into the work that I do now. Um, And I'm going to leave it there because I want to hear everybody else's story. Thanks, Gila. Danielle? 
I was thinking, I was like, it's unclear whether I'm next in the <laughs> alphabet or last in the alphabet, but I'll go ahead. Um, so I think for, for me, um, there are so many layers to this answer. And so I'm trying to figure out how to most concisely uh, talk about why I do this work. And I think in some ways, um, it's because it's the work that's been placed in front of me that feels like the place where, um, like in the Christian tradition, we talk about calling where your um, gifts and uh, understanding meet the world's needs. Um, and so I very much feel motivated by my faith commitment. Um, and in particular, this, this commitment to do justice and love kindness and walk humbly with God, which is the Bible verse that first that to me kind of guides my ethic of life. And so um, kind of working through um, uh, solutions and alternatives to preventing and promoting healing for um for sexual violations kind of emerges from that. And because my background's in theology, I both see the ways that organized religion has been complicit in that harm, and then also see the ways that they've been um, places of comfort and support and, and to kind of help future leaders who are going to go into those spaces of organized religion have the tools that they need so that they can be places of support and not people who continue to inflict harm. Thank you, Danielle. Go ahead, Miriam. Oh, hello, everyone. Um, I am very grateful to be amongst all of you. It's so wonderful to be here and to share uh, all our learned experiences and, you know, what brought us together uh, today. I think it's, it's actually quite a funny story how I ended up doing the work that I do on spiritual abuse. So as the bio was read out, I was kind of smirking to myself and thinking, gosh, okay, what is a security expert or somebody who's done regional security analysis, you know, strong, hardcore politics, political science and international relations winds up in the study of religion and social impact and training faith leaders. So rewind a little bit. It was 2015 and I was doing my PhD, which despite the title of war studies, was actually on understanding prejudice. So I was looking at anti-Semitism and Islamophobia through the lens of targets. So you can understand like external prejudices, those things that happen to our communities, you know, gendered Islamophobia, gendered anti-Semitism. And through the course of speaking to individuals about their lived realities, um, you know, I, I got to learn a little bit more about how that manifests and how people respond to these forms of prejudice. Now, after the interviews finished or at the end of every interview, not every, but many interviews, the participant would turn to me and say, thank you so much for, for and, you know, holding the space and for engaging on this much needed issue. But I have something to say that I don't think is rather relevant but I'd like to share with you. And I'd say, of course, you know, it's it's not recording. We can, and then they'd say, well, you might need this at some point. So sometimes we'd continue recording. Anyway, they would then ask me, we talked about ways in which that I have countered Islamophobia or prejudice, racism in, my, in, 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 in the wider society. What can be done when forms of abuse happen within these spaces? 
these safe, so-called safe spaces. And they would tell me these stories, these lived realities of abuse, of oppression, all forms, often, you know, gendered in nature, sometimes sexual in nature. And obviously this, you know, I went in as a researcher. I was not there uh, with, with a particular goal, obviously, that I could not, you know, be sidetracked. However, that stayed with me and I, and I obviously documented those things. Then over time, you know, a lot happened and social justice was always at the cornerstone of all my endeavors. It's, you know, it's all about impact and, and being social justice driven because I believe that is the essence of my faith as a Muslim woman. So, you know, a lot happened. I was beginning to see these issues sprout within community spaces, you know, having the opportunity to, to uh, you know, to train faith leaders on social challenges. A lot had emerged that there was a lot of misunderstanding, a lot of misconceptions regarding abuse or, or oppression within communities. And that led me, as Gila was saying, you know, finding not only the tools, but the terminology to explain and guide me in a way that I am most useful to addressing these challenges. And, you know, it's been a, quite a journey. I finished my PhD in 2018. I think it was around 2019 onwards. It's been very much focused on internal challenges, namely spiritual abuse. And that is what my current writing and research and advocacy and campaigning has been all about. So, um, and, and again, you know, as Danielle was saying as well, it's what gets put in front of you. You know, we don't choose this. We, I, I believe in faith and I believe in Gismuth and I believe that many things are ordained. We do then have the choice to make as to what we will do next when something is in front of us. So as, as a woman of faith, as a person of faith, that's what I believe. So I'm going to leave it there. Thank you, Miriam. Go ahead, Nadia. Thank you so much. Uh, it's been lovely to hear everyone's stories and I'm so, so humbled um, to be in community with such incredible colleagues. I know Gila and I go back a few years and Mariam and I just met earlier this year. So really grateful to, to be in community and, and really looking forward to learning more about you, uh, Reverend Hansen. Um, I resonate with so much of what was shared. Um, you know, my journey began really early when I was an adolescent and I was finding myself playing the role of being a confidant and a resource um, of, for those navigating around me that were navigating, you know, um, dating and relationships and often sex and sexual violence. And, you know, fast forward, what, you know, when I'm immersed in my academic journey where I'm learning, uh, I'm, you know, I'm trained in public health. So I was learning about inequities and health disparities and public health education and, you know, interventions that work and don't work and, you know, um, reaching marginalized folks and hard to reach co um, communities. I realized that, you know, while I was trying my very best as a young person to be a resource for my friends and family, you know, a couple years earlier than that, there were often questions that remained unasked. And namely, those two questions were, are you being safe? And do you feel safe? And as I was working, as I began working in professional spaces, now, you know, armed with more knowledge and understanding of what barriers are to seeking information and services, I realized that once I asked those questions, all of a sudden, um, I opened the floodgates. And all of a sudden, I was, I was finding myself 
having to be this resource for folks to connect them to the right resources and not just connect them to the right resources, but connect them to resources that I know would actually work and that would actually like make them feel seen and heard and not make them feel tokenized or exotified or shamed or blamed or um, uh, otherized. Right. And, and given my unique position as a Muslim woman in, in Chicago, I found myself like starting to, to see what it would be like to build spaces where people could come together and learn about their bodies, learn about um, violence and, 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 um, and storytell around some of their lived experiences that they did not feel safe sharing in their other faith spaces or in their other cultural communities. And now all of a sudden are finding not only community with one another, but uh, inspiration to build power uh, among themselves to become resources for their communities so that everyone else does not have to navigate alone. Thank you for that, all of you. And as I was listening to everyone answer this question, I'm just reminded of how oftentimes our work comes to us in unexpected ways and that we don't necessarily seek it out, that it sort of comes a lot from personal experience and who we are um, and not necessarily is something that we go out and decide to do. Um, so the question I have for each of you is sort of twofold. So I'm wondering if each of you can talk about the scope of sexual harm and what you see as particularly troubling about it from your respective locations. I mean, I think the scope is universal in context, if not in numbers of individuals. So I don't know that there's an institution in the world that doesn't have an experience of sexual harm embedded within it, whether or not it's voiced or not is a different concern. Um, but uh, I, I was I was recently reading a book by a new book by Anita Hill called Believing. It's like sitting here on my desk. And um and one of the things that she talks about is that it's really not possible to um to undo some of the other systemic problems in our world without tackling sexual harm and gender-based violence. Um, because of how pervasive it is. So I think that, you know, the, the structures of power that make um, all sorts of sexual harm permissible are embedded in our institutions and faith-based institutions certainly aren't immune to that, um, even though some of them try really hard to be and some of them try less hard to be. So when I... I look at any institution, my question isn't, is sexual harm present here, but rather um, what, what steps are being taken to either um, actively engage in accountability measures and also to prevent future instances from occurring. So, um, so that, that tends to be my perspective that it, it's pretty, pretty universal, but certainly doesn't have to be. Yeah, I, I completely um, agree with that. And I'm what I'm thinking about is, you know, off the scope of sexual harm. I mean, if you look at it from a spectrum or a continuum, I mean, you know, not even to put things on a hierarchy, but you you hear stories all the time of like very horrifying, egregious harm 
but also everyday harm that happens, right? And to me, um, you know, I always challenge folks, you know, who like to focus on the egregious harm and create like this binary of monsters and heroes and things like that, where I always ch challenge them and say, you know, not to minimize that harm, of course, it's, it's, it's very horrifying, but to challenge them to interrogate how it got to be that egregious, because it doesn't happen in a vacuum. And what really needs to happen is that, you know, we have to like interrogate the systems to um, the earlier point made about structures of power, like what is creating the environment for such egregious harm to occur. And oftentimes, you know, it's easy for us to address, like when a harm gets that egregious, it's easy for us to address that to some degree, because it's like, oh, we're just going to fire that person, or we're just going to, um, this is horrible, we don't, you know, we don't stand for this, and it's easy to kind of rally against that. What's har the harder work is the everyday harm that occurs, which is, you know, the rape culture, the victim blaming, the misogyny, the homophobia, the transphobia, the anti-blackness, all of those kinds of harms that occur in our spaces every single day, which unfortunately our religious spaces in particular are immersed in those harms. Um, and those are the those are the harms that are not only harder to address, but also when people do speak up about them, often the ones that are silenced. I could just add to that. I, I completely agree. I'm nodding along, um, just building on, on what both Danielle and, and Nadia has, have said, is that when we look, as you said, it doesn't happen in a vacuum, Nadia, completely agree. But taking a step further back, and specifically with regards to the community that, well, I mean, it's not a monolith, the community that you and I come from, you know, I'm sitting here in London as we were talking about locations and I am a British, Irish, Pakistani, Muslim woman with all these intersections. So obviously my understanding might be a tad different and I don't claim to represent anyone. However, when we look specifically at, quote unquote, the Muslim communities of the world with regards to addressing sexual harms, the word sex, the word sexual, these terms are taboo in themselves, even in a positive sense when they are used. So, you know, even when I was, you know, when you guys invited me onto this podcast, I kind of thought, wow, okay. You know, we're starting from a point where we are immediately dismissed for using the basic terminology that is the premise of this entire endeavor, right? As opposed to how do we mitigate and, you know, how do we stop these harms? You know, Nadia made an amazing point about, you know, we address racism, we address all of these everyday harms. But when it comes to just, just sitting here and thinking, gosh, well, because I'm, you know, I'm, I'm addressing other things at the moment as well, um, such as the floods in Pakistan at the moment. So I have Pakistani heritage and, you know, a third of the country um, is underwater right now. And a lot of my friends are making effort to uh, get aid uh, to, to victims out there. And some of us are trying to work towards um, getting, uh, you know, menstrual uh, uh, sort of um, uh, pads and uh, care, safety delivered to those w women out there. And we're immediately told on social media, why are you discussing menstruation? Don't say that word. So it's not just limited to sex. Anything related to women or uh, basically, essentially, 
it is a matter of control. As you were saying, power, it is about holding on to that control, which for many, you know, in within religious spaces, specifically, I, I'm speaking with regards to my own experience as a Muslim woman, it is a very traditional patriarchal understanding of the faith. And as such, the lived practices of that faith are going to be through that lens. And as such, anything that we do is immediately met with such fierce setbacks and vilification that, you know, I feel like, you know, when we talk about being in mainstream secular societies, we can have these conversations as, you know, this is what sexual violence means, this, you know, let's have a discussion and debate. But when we go back to our own communities in these silos of sorts, we're taken back several spaces. And I think that's something, you know, as, as a campaigner, as a researcher, I feel like you know, sometimes I feel quite uh, frustrated, in fact. But, but but coming into these community spaces as we're sitting now, this is why I'm here. I'm here to learn about what what we can do. So I hate to sound pessimistic or to end on a pessimistic note and hand over to, I think, Gila next. But um, I just, you know, what can we do? Uh, Mariam, I don't think it's pessimistic. I think it's being a realist. And in order to do this work, we have to be realistic about the communities in which we're working and what is tolerable to them. Now, that doesn't mean that we change the research or change our curriculum, but it's how can I move them along in a way that they can hear me? And I want to add a layer to what you just spoke about. And you're, you know, Alyssa and Alexa, your listeners can't see. All of us are nodding. That means this is familiar to each of us in our own faith communities and in our own independent lives with all of the intersections with which we live. But I want to add a piece. It's not just the taboo about speaking about the body. It's that we are all women doing this work. And I will speak for my community, uh, a community is really dominated by men. And so we are women who do not always have the same authority as men talking about a really controversial and taboo topic where Statistically, women are primarily the victims, at least in the statistics around mainstream society. Religious communities don't collect that data, so it's very hard to point to men or women. In, in the Jewish community, for a long time, the conversation has been around male victims when it comes to child abuse. Recently, there's been a shift to talking about female victims, and Me Too did a favor to women victims by raising up Sexual harassment lies on that continuum of sexual violence and women too are victimized. And what does that look like in faith communities? So I just, I want to add that piece of the taboo and the gender. I know when I speak to certain communities, I have to give a piece of Torah first and, and establish myself as a Torah scholar to then say, I'm going to use terminology that you might not use, but because you are mandated reporters and I'm teaching you how to report today, I need to teach you how to say the words, because if you call and you say something inappropriate is happening with the child, that's no alarm, right? No one's going to, to do anything about that, but you have to know the terms. So um, yes to everything you've all said, and maybe that's for another, another conversation about the advocates and the movement leaders around these issues, but being, being a woman has definitely been complicated in, in doing this work. You know, and I'm going to, uh, yes, I have been shaking my head. Yes, this whole time you're all talking. And I'm going to add a piece of that to the Jewish world, right? So Gila, you and I come from very different parts of the Jewish world. I was raised, you know, more conservative, uh, but 
practice as part of the reform de uh, denomination, uh, which is far more progressive. And so the problem that I'm seeing from the reform world and from, you know, people who claim to be so progressive and, you know, believe in social justice, I, I've even been called, you're just one of those social justice Jews, uh, is that they think they're doing a good job, right? Because they are uh, able to, some of them, able to talk more openly about some of the taboo and therefore they're doing it right, but they're not, Right. And so even when or especially when I think you are dealing with people who claim to be so progressive and open minded, it's just as problematic as parts of the 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 faith world that are more conservative and more patriarchal. So it leads to this other question about why do you think this is happening? And it goes back to what Danielle was saying about it's I don't think about is it happening? because it's universal, it's everywhere. So is there something different about the faith-based world or is it just an extension of what's happening in the secular world, right? Is it organizational or structural? Because when I think of things like the Catholic church, there was this hierarchy, right? And, you know, the archdiocese could move somebody from one place to another place and no one would ever hear about it. Whereas in the Jewish world, it's there's little oversight, right? Each denomination is structured differently. And in some spaces, the, you know, overarching board of a denomination actually has no authority to do anything in congregational and rabbinic life. So that poses a problem too, right? So what are each of you seeing with regard to structure or is it just a extension of the society in which we live? So um, when I've read research on this, what I found, um, and I, I put this in the chat box when you guys were talking before, because I, I regretted not saying it earlier. And I thought, oh, great. It actually really fits here. When I've done research on this, um, what researchers have found is that at least within faith-based spaces, the rates of abuse tend to be higher when the religions are more authoritarian. So why does that happen? It happens because um, I think of a couple of things. The first is that you have an environment set up where nobody can question structures. And so if the structures um, are permitting patriarch patriarchy and misogyny, um, which so many of them do because they're, they're run by men and men have, um, if anyone who has power might want to protect their power. So you have these authoritarian institutions that want to maintain their power um, and uh, and protect themselves, and they tend to be more closed off. So, um, so if you want some really well-publicized examples, you could look at the FLDS or um, the Scientologists, these, these organizations that are by and large pretty closed off from the rest of society. And so people who are um, inside the structures might not even know what resources or, are available. They might not know how to name what's going on. They don't have a name for what's happening. It's because it's condoned by the religion itself. So, so those are reasons why you might find higher rates of abuse. Um, having said that, so there's such a variety of, um, or there's some, to some extent, a variety of rates of abuse within at least Christian institutions, which is what I know the most about. Um, but, 
But one study I read um, found that at least within the Catholic Church, I think the rate of abuse was 4% of priests. And that was not entirely dissimilar to what you would see in a United States public school. So I'm not sure that that it is very different um, in the faith-based world versus the secular world because it's a faith-based institution. I think what might make it different are some of the structures within the faith-based institution um, that either make it harder or less hard um, to seek accountability or to prevent harm from occurring in the first place. So can I interject with a question? And um, you might have said this. I'm just wondering about the the 4% rate of abuse happening, for example, within the Catholic Church. So is that based on data that the Catholic Church is giving to outside folks? Or is that based on what researchers are finding? I thought it was done by... um, by uh, someone at John Jay at a uh, criminal justice okay. program. Um, yeah. So it's Dr. I can look for it. So it's yeah. Dr. Karen Terry. She was my yeah. dissertation advisor and I worked on that study with her. Yeah. Um, and so what the number comes from is the, you know, in 2002, when abuse in the Catholic church really came to our knowledge of abuse in the Catholic church came to a head. Um, there was all of these stories in the media and the Catholic church finally said, okay, we have to do something about this. And so um, they handed over all of this data to John Jay college uh, and to, to Karen Terry. And so basically it was every report um, that was disclosed between like 1950 and 2002 um, so every person who came forward with a disclosure of abuse, and uh, then there was a file on every single person within the church that was named as somebody who had perpetrated the abuse. Um, so what they had was like 10,000 cases of abuse. And from those disclosures, they were able to map that to about 3 to 4% of people who worked within the church, mostly priests, um, had abused children. And we can provide links to that. We actually had Dr. Terry on the first season of the podcast where she talked a little bit about this. I, I want to add um, something, which is, you know, my friend and my colleague, Dr. Shira Berkowitz from Sacred Spaces always says abuse is not a religious issue. It's a human issue that extends to religious institutions. And we've all said some version of that. But there is something that happens in religious communities that does a layer of damage that may not occur in other spaces, which is when the religious leader or the religious texts are then used to abuse, to cover up abuse, to blame the victims, to silence victims, to excuse the abuse, to actually give justification for that. There's a warping of religion, a warping of your family, a warping of your communal space, your communal home, your shelter that is different, I think, than if it happens in a workplace or if it happens in a sports environment. They may have similar elements, right? And in my naivete, when I started this work as an Orthodox woman in Orthodox communities, 
I said, okay, I understand why the silence is here, but it must be very different in progressive spaces. Going back, Alyssa and Alexa, to your original question here. And then I went to work in these progressive spaces and in other faith communities. And I said, well, the silence is the same. It just might look different and it might be called a different thing, but the silence exists everywhere. But it's that warping of um, your home that is so damaging. And it's not just damaging to survivors. And this is what I wish faith leaders understood. You're doing damage to the entire faith community. It may hit them later on, you know, but you are doing damage to the credibility of your own faith movement. And, and that's, I think, something that's different when it happens in, in faith groups. And I, I want to give others the chance to comment on that or anything else. But I, I think that's important to know. Just to build on what Gila is saying, because I was nodding immensely as you were speaking. Yes, it's that weaponization of religious texts or practices. It is, for all intents and purposes, spiritual abuse, as we would call it. Now, looking at the way in which this manifests and also how it is addressed in pockets of from my research perspective, any Muslim communities, I find it very interesting to compare the context of, in this case, British Muslims who are a minoritized faith group in Britain, a quote unquote secular society, with how this pans out in a Muslim majority country. So, you know, from my research, you know, taking the case study of the Islamic Republic of Pakistan, which is guided supposedly by Sharia, um, which is you know based on Islamic jurisprudence and everything. But what I find very, very interesting is the pushback that I see within my own British Muslim community to um, accountability measures, safeguarding measures uh, that are uh you know kind of uh, grouped together with secular norms as if anything that is uh to to mitigate violence to you know to prevent certain um abuses within our community as if that is an external thing which is interesting when the voices are coming from within the voices that are being silenced are actually from within these spaces so there's a very um confusing and difficult situation happening and and I'll give you an example uh, you know and I'm I'm not really sure of how things are in the US and Canada but um religious marriage be that uh, Muslim or anything that isn't you know white Anglo-Saxon Christian um is not um legalized within uh, the British law. It's not co- in, in, within the constitution. Well, our, co- our constitution isn't even codified, so that's a whole other story. But we do not recognize these as legal marriages. They need to be registered. So there's a mass movement led by mainly Muslim women, lawyers and educators and campaigners to have those marriages registered. And there is such pushback from within the community Um to, to not let this happen as if this was a you know a secular affront to the the Muslim way of life. Now these this is the nature of the conversation here, and this is before we even get to abuses within the community, right? Um, so this is just the playing field on which all of this it's not a playing field, it's rather a battleground, right? 
And, and then comparing that to a Muslim-majority country, so in Pakistan, there's an awful lot of, unfortunately, an awful lot of gendered spiritual abuse directed towards women and children within um, familial spaces. So I think this is crucial when Gila was talking about you know, the institution, but it's within the home when we talk about the everyday spiritual abuses. Now, in that case, um, what it looks like will be very context specific. So I'm not suggesting that one is worse than the other. I'm not comparing or contrasting them in that sense, but the nature in which the conversation emerges will be rather specific. And this is just within the Muslim community. So although I do agree that it is no different in many ways because um, religion is not, um, you know, it is not um, somehow prone to abuses more so than any other community or any other institution. However, it is very interesting to see that there are even certain minute differences. So you talked about, you know, initial, your initial question was about the denominational differences even. So within the Muslim faith community, um, the manifestation of a certain form of gendered abuse directed towards a specific um, person within a subsect of the community might might be very different to what others experience in that community. So I think it's also very important as our research improves and grows that we take into account these differences and also see the parallels. So there will be certain things are that are temporally, spatially and historically contingent, but there are also things that you know um, I work with. So Gila and I have had the opportunity to bounce ideas off each other, but uh, another friend and colleague of mine here in the UK, uh, who's part of our, our, our growing group of academics in this field, uh, Dr. Lisa Oakley, she's a co-author of mine now, and, and she and I have been looking towards ways in which interfaith can be a glue that brings us together and helps us understand the similarities, not only within faith communities, but also the bridge between the faith and the secular domain. Because, you know, essentially, I feel like um, we, we, we can't, there are binaries of sorts in some spaces, but sometimes it's important to understand the porous nature of those binaries. So I will leave it at that. Nadia, is there anything you want to add? I mean, everyone's, I'm, I'm vigorously shaking my head uh, or in agreement because I think, um, you know, uh, it, there is no difference. Uh, it's an extension into religious spaces and the ways in which it manifests is unique to religious spaces. And I think it has everything to do with power and everything to do with the weaponization of religion, as has already been pointed out. So, so yeah. So that leads us into the next question that or topic that we wanted to talk about. And we were asking if each of you can speak to how sexual harm in your faith is impacting survivors that you've spoken with. I can I can share some of the stuff um, that we've learned. Uh, so, uh, you know, everyone's trauma is unique um, and, you know, depending on, you know, a person can ex experience the same level of harm or trauma if they've been harassed as well as, as as they've been raped. We know this, right? So the depending on the individual person, their response is going to be unique to their specific lived experience. Uh, specifically in with respect to experiencing sexual harm, either in a religious space or by a religious authority or somebody who, you know, is using religion to to sort of perpetrate the harm. 
I have been, um, you know, there are a number of stories that have been shared with me about survivors who feel triggered um, in mainstream or traditional Muslim spaces who, you know, cannot hear um, the Quran being recited or can't pray because it's too triggering. Um, and for me, like this to me is, is really devastating and enraging for exactly the reasons that Gila pointed out earlier um, about, you know, the weaponization of, of religion and like not only have these folks experienced sexual harm, which is in and of itself debilitating, but now their relationship with God, um, ha like this person has come, be you know, in between their relationship uh, with them and God. And that in Islam, we believe is actually, there's no intermediary, right? It's just an individual and God, and that's it. No one can get between that. And so to hear um, survivors share with me that, you know, they don't feel safe um, going to traditional Muslim spaces, not just because of the ways that they're made up. So I know it's been pointed out that a lot of our spaces are are dominated by cishet men in particular, and that leadership, you know, all looks the same. And, you know, uh, they're not women friendly in, in general. They're not um, LGBTQ, queer folk friendly, right? Like there's there's all of these already things in place that make people unsafe to begin with, with going to these spaces. And then on top of it, if they feel like they have experienced harm in that space or in a space that looks like that, it's even more triggering for them. The other thing that I'll say is um, too often we see religious spaces um, giving platforms to uh, those who perpetrate sexual harm and other kinds of harm, but uh, sexual harm in particular, um, they will give them platforms. So invite them for speeches, invite them to do keynotes, invite them to be the imam of the space, et cetera. And that in and of itself is also um, really triggering for folks uh, who, you know, either have spoken up in the past and have not have been not believed or who, who know that other people are being harmed and don't think it's their place to speak up. Um, and really it, it begs the question of like, who are we okay with giving um, the, the mantle to um, and really interrogating how, um, you know, uh, like whose voice is credible and whose voice is not and how do we actually determine who gets to be in that position of celebrity or of power or of religious authority? I think that some survivors aren't even being seen or invited to the table at all. So if they remain invisible, but these communities are saying, we're going to do all this work, you need to see the people who are most impacted by the harms that have been caused. And you need to understand their expertise and their lived experience that they can help you actually respond. So that's one way. Number one is they might be invisible. Number two, some of them have decided that they want nothing to do with religion. I have had um, Jewish survivors tell me that it was soul murder, soul murder. I want us to think about what that means, um, that their entire, you know, as Nadia said, relationship with God is gone. Others have said, whether or not I believe, I am going to do everything I can to ensure that this Jewish space is safe for survivors, but they have been delegitimized because they are survivors. So they have to choose whether or not to disclose that piece of themselves in their advocacy, because by saying they are a survivor, instead of making that hold them up as somebody who has what to say, 
they feel in the community's eyes, it lowers them, right? So that's the third thing. And then the last one, which I really want to drive home is that they have said to me, um, I don't expect much from the person who harmed me, but the religious community that abandoned me, that enabled that abuse, that stood by them, they're the ones who I'm upset at. So it's the secondary victimization that they hold as more harmful in certain ways and where they believe there are opportunities for accountability. And so to me, that's what survivors are saying. You know, the perpetrator is never going to apologize, but at least all these other people who should have known and should know better, why aren't they doing anything? And they could hold me. Why are they choosing not to? So that's what Jewish survivors have said to me in terms of how they've been impacted by sexual harm. And then finally, one rabbi recently told me, you're the only one in the Jewish community that talks about abuse in the way that you do. And I said, what do you mean? He's like, no one talks about rape. No one talks about it. They just talk about like the harassment, the discrimination, not to minimize. And I said, well, I hold the stories of people who've been raped in our synagogues, in our places. And so somebody has to say it. As you're speaking, Gila, specifically about the loss uh, felt and the pain felt um, losing the community or not even having community some support sounds a lot like institutional betrayal, which is something um, we covered specifically when we did an episode recently on um, sexual harm within the military context. That's what a lot of survivors within that organizational context also say. I think I think what I would add as well is that that my experience um, of hearing survi- from survivors, mostly in various parts of the Christian community, is that um, is that there is this effect of the trauma radiating outwards into the community itself. So, um, so one of the things that um, I once read in a book said something like it takes a faith-based community at minimum a generation to really move through a trauma like uh, sexual abuse that happens within the context of a congregation. And and I think that's probably right that there are radiating effects that go out into the community for really quite some time um, and that result in individuals leaving, in people having really divisive views of who they believe if the faith leader wound up leaving. Um, you know, some people agree with that faith leader leaving. Some people don't. Some people um, really trust the person who came forward and made a claim. Some people don't. People might not even know who it is. And then they're trying to figure out who it is. And and there's just collectively a loss of trust. And so, um, and that loss of trust then, you know, for each person who has that story, what are they going out into the world? What story are they telling about organized religion, um, you know, at the dinner table to their families, this, this is now, um, the story that they have to share and what, what that faith tradition represents. So, um, you know, I think especially when the, the faith leader is the one who's enacting the harm, it does such tremendous damage to the institution, but even if it's, um, you know, a a lay leader or, or someone who's not ordained, not in charge of the, um, say the church, uh, that, that still has an effect that really radiates outwards in the congregational life for a, for a long time. 
just to build on all that's been said again we've all been nodding and I just think that you know Gila you made the point about um spiritual death murder that honestly it is nothing short of that when we I speak to survivors within Muslim communities there's a similar sort of it echoes what you've been talking about with regards to Jewish survivors and they're telling you it is the shame the stigmatization the the feeling that you're no longer worthy of of being a muslim or being in god's mercy or god's light which isn't even true but it is you know and and i think what what happens is this is compounded then when we have um more secular groups so women's aids groups of sorts who are not well versed in or trained at all in helping survivors of spiritual abuse or sexual abuse within faith-based communities they're they're oblivious often to the context to you know it's very easy for people to say that religion is the problem and that the uh, victim should remove themselves from uh, you know it's it's impositions um, and that will grant them freedom and relief and you know all that does is feed into the narrative that is concocted by abusers, by abettors, by enablers, right? And, and I think that's that's what is making this entire challenge all the more difficult for us to address. Because when people who are even well-meaning, well-intentioned, you know, they, they will say things that out of ignorance often. And I think that's another role that we as, you know, academics, educators, campaigners, activists really need to step up and and kind of, you know, pull our resources together and say, actually, let's aid those who are allies too. And, you know, obviously we we can talk about the emotional burden of of labor that it has on us. And I'm not suggesting we all need to do this, but um, I think this brings me to another point, which isn't relevant to this question, but I often find that many of us who are working in these spaces, I don't know about you guys, but I feel like sometimes we take on a task um, and and we bite off more than we can chew. And what is perhaps best is acknowledging and accepting that there is a limit to what I can give, not in terms of just experience, but even my own energy. And perhaps the best way forward is by reaching out to others, building those communities. We often talk about that and we say that to survivors. We build those those communes and we build those collectives and spaces for those survivors, right? With those survivors, not for as if they don't have the agency, but we're all part of that process. But what are we doing for ourselves as activists as academics as you know and I think a lot has to be said I apologize for going off track from the question but it just leads me to think about that you know we and and many of us you know are survivors as well again Gila your point was absolutely imperative to acknowledge that you know many of us are shut down we don't want to accept uh, or speak up and say actually I myself am a survivor because oftentimes that's met with well she has a vendetta 
she has a purpose that's aha that's the moment where they realize they, it's their gotcha moment they think ah i know why she's doing this that's why she's an angry feminist everything the puzzle is all is set then for them everything fits and slots into place and this is all the more reason why i often don't speak about my own experience i and i can see many of you nodding i don't and and then i speak to my mother i speak to my sisters well not blood sisters but i have sisters you know in the sisterhood and i speak to them and i say gosh i really i'm dying to say this so sometimes i channel it through poetry through spoken word and eventually one day i do hope to do it justice and, and write it all out write out my heart but right now I want to center the survivors. I know I myself am a survivor, but I can't say that in those community settings where I'm sitting amongst faith leaders trying to encourage them to, to take and seek out this training because the, the next step would be actually them acknowledging there is a problem and rectifying it. And actually, and saying, yes, we can do more. Let's step up to the plate. So when we are in those situations, our our, our work is multi-pronged and sometimes certain things, they remain unsaid. So it still feels like, although we're no longer supposedly silenced, there is the self-silencing that we then uh, in, undergo. And I just think there's so much to be said here about that. But again, guys, I apologize for <laughs> veering off track. <laughs> I, if if I may, I I'd, I'd really like to 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 add on to that. I think Mariam, what you're talking about here is the self silencing and Gila, what you mentioned about like the oftentimes the institutional and communal betrayal is worse than the harm that you've experienced yourself. I think that is a point that we really need to sit with and we really need to interrogate because. Um, oftentimes the self-silencing, like if I experience something, I'm not speaking up, not only because I'm ashamed or I'm embarrassed or I'm scared, but also because I just saw the other woman who did disclose, get dismissed, get blamed, get whatever. And now I've decided, well, I'm going to be treated the same way, right? Whether it's from my family or from my community space or my faith space or my mosque, right? And so to your point, uh, Mariam, about like the role that everyone can play. I mean, I literally do think that everyone like needs to know how to respond to a disclosure. Like this is this is a life skill that everyone should have, right? And 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 that doesn't mean that everyone should know how to do accountability or everyone should know how to do, you know, what law enforcement does or what you know social workers do or whatever but everyone if somebody comes to you and says this happened to me i need resources or i'm scared or you know whatever everyone should know what to do in that moment of crisis and and i think this is where i've noticed that muslim communities in particular get paralyzed because they feel like oh well i'm not i'm not I'm not a lawyer. I'm not a cop. I'm not, a, you know, I'm not a social worker. So, you know, I, I really don't know what to do here. And a lot of times they feel paralyzed by responding to this sexual harm because they're afraid of having to choose between believing the survivor and or believing the perpetrator. Right. And they feel like they have to make they have to make a choice between the survivor and the perpetrator. And they're also afraid, oh, well, now I have to play judge and jury and, and you know, do this accountability game. No, you don't. You just have to get this person in crisis, some some resources. 
right? You have to believe them and you have to get them some um, some resources. And so consequently, those you know who are harmed are left to fend for themselves. And one of the ways that we at heart have kind of addressed this is developing a three-tiered framework to respond to sexual assault. And what, the first one is responding with rahma, which is compassion in Arabic. And that is a tool that literally teaches everyone, whether you're a professional or just a mom or a neighbor, right? Of like, this is how you can respond to a disclosure in their moment of crisis. You don't have to worry about accountability. You don't have to worry about anything. I mean, you just don't. Like, you just get this person the help that they need. And then somebody else who knows, who has the professional expertise will get them all the other stuff. Um, and I think that that is something that I think can address some of the communal harm and the institutional betrayal that's happening um, when people experience sexual harm. So I'm going to try to tie a whole bunch of things back together, beginning with Maryam. You know, you said, I'm sorry for taking us off track. You were going exactly where I was going. And I could feel like, you know, that the the way that uh, trauma and pain impact us on a physical level. And, you know, for our listeners, I'm sitting here on a Zoom screen with my colleagues here with my hand on my heart because I could feel my heart rate increasing and thinking about, do I want to share this, right? So I'm going to do it. I've never shared this out loud. Gila, Alexa, I think Danielle, you know this. Uh, I am very open in the Jewish world about my own experience of sexual harm. Uh, I talk about it as, you know, so I was raised in a fairly conservative family, a conservative Jewish family, not conservative political views. Um, and when I came out as queer, when I was 12 or 13, the community did not handle it appropriately. Like, and I was on this track where I was going to be a rabbi and like, like that's where I was headed. And then when I came out, the community didn't handle it well. So when I experienced rape, when I was 16, it happened because I was queer. And when I think about those two things together, it was like, that, that's it. I'm done. I am done with Judaism. I am done with faith. I am done with God. And it took me 15 years to walk back into a synagogue. So I am very open about that experience. Um, so eight years ago, I walked back into a synagogue and Judaism became a really important part of my life again. And, you know, even my wife, she says, like, we had a hard time when I, um, you know, was like, well, I'm I'm going to shul on Friday nights, like it's a thing. And she's like, but I thought you were an atheist. Like I've known you since you were twelve. I saw you through the the you know the religious part of your life, and I saw you leave that and condemn it and say I'm never going back. And now you're like full throated. I'm in. And so we worked through it. And you know, after some time, she said, I really see the way that this benefits you. You're such a spiritual person. It's you know, it's the core of who you are. So fast forward, I actually helped to build a synagogue without walls. And I ran the synagogue and I led worship services every Friday night. And it meant the world to me. The community told me that I was the nefesh. I was the soul of this community. And so I have not been harmed sexually in the Jewish world. But my rabbi and my co-leader of this organization was so incredibly hurtful to me, actually using my mental illness as a knife in my back. 
And uh, yeah, I walked away from the community. I haven't been back in a worship service in over a year. I still do work in the Jewish world. It's very important to me. I have not condemned Judaism. But what happened with that is that I walked away and this community that said, you are the soul, never asked a question, never checked in, never wondered, right, that I had been their voice as we built this place and then I was just gone and there was no accountability, no asking what had happened, but I've never shared the story. I've never publicly said this anywhere exactly for what you're saying, Miriam. Like, oh, people are going to think, oh, she just has a vendetta, right? Or I'm going to be blamed in some way for, for it happening. So this is the first time I've ever named this out of, you know, a few conversations with people. And it is so incredibly hurtful. And it was not just the pain from the rabbi. It was the community, right? And so, as I said, I'm trying to tie in all of these pieces where, you know, there is harm by clergy, there's harm by leaders, but it's actually the communal harm, the silencing, the not asking questions, the not demanding accountability, the looking the other way, that also leads to soul murder, right? So what do we do about that communal harm, especially when we don't want to speak from our own experiences of pain? and harm? And how do we then deal with and talk through the institutional betrayal piece without uh, alienating the people who really need to be at the table because they are the harm doers and not just the direct harm doers, right? Like it's, everybody has a, has a piece in this. Everybody plays a role. You're asking a really big question. <laughs> that doesn't have um, any any good answer. And especially like I struggle with this question because it's, I don't want to ever put the burden of the solution on those who are being harmed. Um, however, I will name that that is what is happening, right? Like those who are being harmed are building these spaces and and building their community uh, because they, they you know, um, they they want to do right for themselves and they want to do right by others and so you know i think there's no easy answer uh i definitely think that it requires uh disrupting and dismantling the ways in which we know power structures in our faith institutions to exist currently and that's an uphill battle and you know it requires those in positions of privilege and power to recognize that they have to humble themselves and and kind of accept the fact that it needs to be rebuilt. Um, and I don't want to be a Debbie Downer because I know that there are people out there that are that are um, committed to doing that. But but I think right now the burden of trying to find the solutions does sit on the shoulders of those who are being harmed. And I think that that is both. Um, healing for many people um, who ultimately build what what they want the world that they want to see, but it's also um, a, a big source of burnout and emotional toll and fatigue and and all of the things on 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 the folks that are actually building. 
I just want to add on onto what Nadia said and you know what you spoke about earlier is so beautifully put about rahmah and mercy and you know a lot of the work and literature that we read it doesn't just stem you know it's very intersectional right it doesn't just stem from just faith-based knowledge or our worldly experiences or anything or, or feminist theory but I do want to add something here when I try to address you know, the lack of willingness in uh, positions of power, those who are quote, gatekeeping communities or those who are in, in authoritative positions. I'm always reminded of bell hooks, always, about the transformative power of love and loving, right? So bell hook says that, quote, the transformative power of love is not fully embraced in our society because we often wrongly believe that torment and anguish are our natural condition, right? That we, we believe, and then I feel this idea of suffering, going through and sacrificing ourselves. Often we find that not just in secular societies, but within our own communities. Wrongfully, there is this culture that um, we have developed in which you know, we can say that wherever we are in the world, you know, a diaspora has a different sense of generational trauma, but we believe that these are things that are almost innate to us, you know, that we are here to suffer. This is something that we must go, it, life is a test, right? And as such, we are not able to accept that love, that mercy, that rahma into our hearts and, and for it to emanate then and then for us to build on that and i and i think of that quite a lot i'm just because i try to think well what why why are we you know we believe in rahma we believe in mercy you know in in muslim prayer we start off by saying in the name of god the most merciful most compassionate every single time that's how each prayer begins and for that to then not be actualized why and then I think, okay, well, it's because when we practice our faith, when we come together in communities, it's because actually we have a very carceral understanding, one based on punishment, because it allows those in positions of authority and power to hold on to that control. And that's what keeps things going. And that's why we have this vicious cycle. And I'm trying, you know, when we try, we say, okay, well, those in positions of power need to accept, they need to acknowledge. But even when we address them with mercy and we try our very best to get them to accept that, you know, open your hearts up. And where we're ridiculed, especially within Muslim communities, oh, well, she's just, you know, they'll say you're a Sufi or you're just, you know, um, you're not really a hardcore, you're not a principled Muslim somehow. So I think there is, and I'm sure others could probably see you guys nodding within your own faith traditions, that this seems to be a rhetoric that is often repeated, which then normalizes the grander abuses that we see. Some of the things that I would add, like some specific tips or advice for faith leaders or communal leaders. And I know, Alyssa, you also asked about those who have done wrong. And I want to get to that too. I don't know if we're going to have time. but 
you know, number one, like know your limitations. What are you trained as? If you were trained as a faith leader and somebody came to ask you to perform heart surgery on them, you would not say lie down on my kitchen table and take out your kitchen knife because that's highly inappropriate. And so if they come to you about sexual violence in the community, you are not trained in that area. So go find the person who is to guide you and your community. It is okay to say, I don't know. It actually makes you a greater leader. And when I've told rabbis this and they say, why do I have to show the community that I did that work? And I said, because you need to model to them that they can do it too. They can't just say that you got the wisdom and then you you teach it to them by yourself. You have to say, here's who I went to. Here's who the community can go to. Um, the second is, you know, in our faith communities, sometimes it's like, if it's not in Judaism and they're not a Jewish expert and they don't get our culture, then, you know, they're not going to understand us and we're not going to turn to them. No, we go to people for lots of different things. Go to them for this too. There's wisdom out there. Go and find it. And in the last five years, there have been enough examples of people who have done it right and people who have done it wrong. So, you're not going to escape that PR disaster, that crisis. You know, it's the same cycle repeating itself over and over. I'm sure we can tell the same story and not say which religious group it's from. And we can all say, yeah, that happened in my community. So, you know, go and find the wisdom out there. As Nadia said, don't burden the survivors. But if they are choosing to talk to you about what you can do, the least you can do, the crumb you can offer is listen to them and take their advice because they're opening themselves up to you despite how they have suffered. And so at least listen to them, but it's not their responsibility. Another thing, don't make abuse as if it's a separate issue from your faith community, because that allows you to say, this is a one-off. We know that it's not a one-off from this conversation alone, right? Do you use, you have weaponized for example, in my community, you have weaponized Jewish texts and Jewish values against survivors. Do the opposite. Go to the text, and they're not always good, but go to the text and say, what is the faith demand here around accountability, around community, around healing, around making people whole, around responsibility? Go to the text because there's wisdom there. And when the wisdom is perverted because it's been interpreted by, as Nadia said, cis white het men. Talk about that fact. Talk about how that wisdom in 2022, what does that mean? What does it look like? How does it need to, to be amended? I almost want to say when you're ready to respond, do the opposite of what you're going to do. Like, just stop for one second and be like, do the opposite. Uh, and then finally, it is about people. It is about relationships. This is not about how you look in the New York Times or in the Jewish Week or whatever paper your community reads. It is about people and relationships. And we forget that sometimes because we get caught up in all these other things. Hold the people, all of the people, and Alyssa, this does get to the harm doer. That's a longer conversation, but hold the people. Um, so part of my job is actually to teach students who are going to be chaplains or faith leaders to have these conversations. And so I tend to take a pretty practical approach with them. And um, like Gila said, creating space for the conversation is um, 
is, is the thing that I want to encourage them to do most. And then practically to give them some skills to do that. So one thing I really encourage them to do is use silence to not feel like they have to jump in immediately and say something. Because oftentimes if they do jump in immediately and say something, what they want to do is problem solve. And it, there's a really good intention behind it. Like, oh, I see someone in pain. I empathize with them. I would like to make the pain go away. So let's problem solve and make it go away. But I also remind my students, it's not really your job to, to solve the problem. Most of the time, sometimes it is. Um, because there's work that the person has to do that's work that's unique to them. And if you tell them how to do it or try to dictate their way through it, um, that's not meeting their needs. It's not putting them first. And um, and the thing that's most important for someone who's lost agency to someone like to something like sexual harm is to find an opportunity to give that agency back. And so creating space um, by not problem solving and not telling them how to solve the problem is a way of not depriving them of agency again. So I really emphasize silence for that, not problem solving, and then asking open-ended questions that let them kind of talk and, um, it, you know, in, in a way that that isn't uh, kind of closing down the conversation. And then the last thing that I do is I talk a lot about mandated reporting laws with my students and. Um, remind them that some of the conversations that they have, oftentimes faith leaders think that their conversations can be confidential and sometimes they can't be confidential and being very open with someone who's seeking care about when um, conversations can't be confidential and why is really important. And, you know, going to either the state and or um, your religious body, if you have structures that are there to respond to sexual harm. Like my denomination has um, kind of a, a built-in system if a faith leader has um, engaged in sexual harm. So I wouldn't just report to the state. I would have to report to my bishop. Knowing that those things are things that you have to do, not if you've confirmed that harm has occurred, but if you suspect it has, if the person's a minor or an elder or disabled, um, those are all things that are really important for them to know. Thanks so much for that. And I really think I I appreciate and I think our our listeners will appreciate hearing sort of the practical guidance that can be given, because I think when people hear disclosures, almost sometimes a panic can set in and that need to problem solve and to quickly fill in space rather than hold space is the knee jerk reaction. And that can be, as you all are saying, so problematic. Um and so now I'm going to ask what might be a controversial question uh, for some of you, but um, the question has to do with people who perpetrate harm and whether or not they actually have a place in religious life. I can take a, I can speak from my opinion. So, you know, in Islam, we, as I mentioned earlier, we do believe that no one can come between an individual and their creator. So with respect to their private religious life, I, you know, I, I'm not one to deny anyone that. Um, with respect to a position of leadership, I actually think it's absolutely okay to say um, you cannot participate in this way 
in this religious space or in the in religious spaces in general, um, because, you know, I believe that religious authority, religious leadership, it's a privilege and a responsibility to lead others. And that can be taken away um, if you fail at that responsibility. So, you know, Gila early on um, or earlier uh, used the example of of uh, in medicine, it's the same thing, right? Like when doctors, doctors can have their license taken away um, and never practice medicine again and play that role again if they harm their patient in a way that is unethical, um, the same standards should be held for religious authority. So, you know, I will never be one to deny someone their redemption or their like private relationship with God, but in terms of playing a public role, I, I'm not afraid to, to speak up for that. And, and, you know, I was personally involved in, in a case in my community where there was a, a teacher of Quran that was, um, you know, accused of, uh, uh, harming one of uh, his young minor students and they, you know, uh, child protective services got involved and he got arrested and all of the, all of the things. And there were a lot of people that were really upset about it, you know, being like, well, you know, this was his livelihood. And what is he going to do now? No one's stopping him from making a, li a living. He just, you know, shouldn't be able to make a living teaching young children the Quran. Right. And, and I think that's the, the, the complexity that people need to kind of hold. Um, and that, you know, that's what accountability can sometimes look like. I think of this question from four different vantage points. And the first is, the first is what the needs of the victimized party and their extended um, kind of secondary or tertiary um, victimized parties are. And so I think foremost, placing their needs first, um, it would be my personal guiding principle that would help determine the extent to which a perpetrator could be uh, brought back into a faith community or be part of a faith community. And then related to that is the extent to which that perpetrator or the person who's perpetrated harm has undertaken active accountability to make things right. And if they haven't, then to me, that's kind of a, that's a hard no. If they have, I think that you can maybe open the conversation to what reengaging would look like. Um, so, but then apart from that, I think there are two really practical questions to ask. And those are, what are the rules of the organ, organ, the body of organized religion? So in my case, the church and what, what are the rules of the state? So there are some cases I could imagine where someone who's perpetrated harm, um, isn't allowed to be around children and might not be legally allowed to reenter, um, say a packed church service, um, or that the church has its own rules for who can be participating in certain ways um, in the aftermath of sexual harm. And so I think just practically navigating those becomes important and goes beyond kind of the, um, the, the, the questions that I would have that are rooted more in um, the needs of the victimized party and the accountability of the perpetrator. So my husband and I had an interesting conversation last week where he was telling me about his synagogue that he went to. And I stopped going to synagogue on, uh, you know, every Shabbat, every Saturday, 
due to a lot of my work and things, unfortunately. Um, and I said, why is every synagogue, there's like a molester there? And he said, well, I keep leaving this synagogue and then I go to another synagogue and then there's another molester there. Like I can't get away from it. So this question is very alive for me. Um, it's alive for me in my life. It's alive for me in my community and it's alive for me in my work. And so I agree with Nadia, like you have a job description has to begin with like the values of the people in that job. And if this has to be bottom line, you know, and yeah, you can revoke someone's license. Um, but I'm not going to tell somebody whether they can or cannot go to synagogue, especially a man who is commanded, you know, to be as part of a quorum, et cetera. But I do, do believe it's the community's responsibility to safeguard that synagogue and safeguard that community or safeguard that workplace. And so I think there have to be limitations put, but it is the community's responsibility to do that. And the leaders sometimes when an abuse case arises are so busy blaming the victim and supporting the perpetrator when instead what they could be doing is my role might be to help this person take accountability. I have a relationship with them. And yes, I worry about their family and all the things that we know are always said, but is there a role for me to play in helping them do right? But for some reason, that question is like, we're going to be hands off because I don't know what I'm supposed to do. And I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm in between the people. You actually, there's a role for the community to play. Danielle, the one thing I want to say, um, you know, you said the extent to which the perpetrator has undertaken accountability to make things right. If they haven't, they shouldn't be part of the community. But if they have, it can open the conversation. In, in my community, in the Jewish community, and I'm talking across the denominations, I don't even know if there has been a model put forward that people would know what that looks like. There are texts about teshuva, repentance and repair. There are steps to follow, but has it actually been applied? I don't know. And so we've been talking about the question for five years and yet have really Alyssa and I are just starting to get this work started and it has taken this long to even get it started and it's baby 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 steps and this is that final question what do we do with those who have harmed so I'm sitting with with that tension because we need models we need models that work so people can say I'm gonna follow that I think the issue uh from my perspective building on what's been said I agree Gila the issue of models taking a step a little more a little further back is the issue of skewed priorities and a lack of willingness to acknowledge the harms and instead what we deem as accountability measures are actually seen by many of the faith leaders as ways of blaming or taking back control or you know uh, sidestepping uh, legitimate authority. Now we need to address that in order for these role models or sorry, these models uh, to be taken seriously. As you said, even within the Islamic faith, there are principles of repentance. There is a guideline, but that's not going to be followed because the priorities are so skewed um, in that what we tend to focus on, abuse happens um, and there's disclosure and we're immediately told do not air dirty laundry and do not use this person or abuse them further. You have a responsibility to your sibling in faith that you must 
cloak their sins as they would cloak yours and God will cloak yours as, as a result. And you kind of think, actually, shall we unpack this? It is sins that are, you know, not committed against other people. You know, you're harming others. In that sense, you need to mitigate those harms and you need to disclose them in a responsible manner. But nobody wants to have that conversation because, as you said, the conversation with your husband, that each synagogue you go to, you'll find another abuser or perpetrator. I could, you know, replace synagogue with mosque or church or temple. The same thing is happening. And I think it is because these uh, models may exist. The guideline and principles will be there. But the skewed priorities, again, going back to holding on to control. This is the vicious cycle that we need to uh, dismantle on many levels every time we encounter it. And I think I've learned so much just just sitting in your presence, guys, just, you know, hearing you speak and thinking, actually, this is what's wrong here, taking notes and stuff. So I, I thank you for that. Well, thank you all so much. It has been an absolute privilege and honor to sit with all of you. As mm -hmm. I said from the get-go, this is... And you can see it like it's such a personal and professional piece of who I am. And I've learned so much from all of you today. As we end our time together, I'm wondering if you could offer two things. Your biggest hope for your area of work and maybe something we haven't covered that you want our listeners to know about you or about the work you do in the world. I think my biggest hope is that we find ways to engage this work together. And I think that takes humility and openness. And so my hope is for more of that. I see so much authenticity and passion amongst the people who are already doing the work. But as some of you kind of said, they're, they're pockets within um within organized religion on the whole. And I think to the extent that we can bring more allies in, that becomes um, really important for systemic change. And so I'd, I'd like to see more of that, um, more partnerships and more allies. So, so uh, I am an Orthodox woman who sits on the board of the Survivors Network for those abused by priests. And I do that because I don't feel there is a, a, an appropriate enough space for me in the Jewish community to do the survivor-led, survivor-centered, survivor advocacy work. Um, and so that's where I go to find the survivor home. And my dream is that there will be those kinds of spaces in the Jewish community where I feel welcome and where I feel survivors are respected and that their voice is centered in this conversation. There are some and there has been movement, don't get me wrong, but that's, you know, I, I feel like that's where I have to do the work. The, the responses to these kinds of issues has been very organizational in the Jewish world. How do we improve the organizations? But as I said before, it's about the people, right? And the relationships. Um, and the second thing I want to say, and Mariam, I, I so admire your pracademic, you know, I, I went into the academy and I left right away because I was like, I'm not here for this theory and to talk to academics. I mean, great for everyone who is, but I want this to be work that will change people and impact people. And, but research is important. 
research is important and we have learned so much by the research that we have done, whether it's through Nadia's health education and I, I, I uphold what you have done for your community. I think we're so behind on sex education and sexual health, so behind. And I look at you and I always quote, I'm like, look at what Nadia has done over there for her community. Can you imagine this curriculum? And so I want this practical and applied research. I want data on these numbers that we're sitting and not knowing about. I want funding for the research to turn into practical projects. I want it to matter to people. I want them to understand that we are doing what we are doing because we have gotten that education through blood, sweat, and tears, let me tell you. But we did it and we're bringing it back to our communities, not because we don't like them, because we love them, because we care. So help us help you, help others help you. Thank you so much. Um, I, I, I mean, all of these hopes are so beautiful. I think my hope is uh, to build enough power with directly impacted and you know the most marginalized voices, so that the powers that be can no longer be as loud as they are. Um, I really, I really want to flip the world on its head and and you know and and dismantle current system of power and see what it would look like to build a world where the most impacted are actually in positions of leadership because i've seen it right i've seen it even in this virtual space like all of y'all are building such beautiful things and the power that that we all have been able to do just in this virtual room imagine what that looks like if we can build that collectively across the board um, and and really um, shake some things up. So that's what my hope is. I just have a tiny little hope to add to what everyone else has said. And essentially it's just this, I want sustainability. I don't want just, you know, uh, some some disclosure. And then, you know, there is a willingness, there is a an empathy within my communities that I see. And there's a sudden outpour of outrage and, you know, uh, outcry and uh, this desire to do better in many spaces. But what happens after a week? What happens after two weeks? Why are we silent again? Why does it have to happen again for us to be reminded? Why do we not take these things seriously? I want it to be not only taken seriously in the short term, but I want these communities that we're mobilizing. And I know I'm, I'm maybe I'm impatient, but I would like to see us do more, do better and do together not in our little spaces. I feel that's another thing that we need to work towards. So that's my wish. Sustainability is the wish to bring everything, as everyone said, together, but make sure that is it, it is as effective as possible in the here and now and in the long-term. And my biggest hope, uh, what gives me hope is the students and the younger generations that I see who have certain role models or certain avenues and outlets that maybe my generation of millennials didn't have. And I see them, many of them cultivate those spaces, hold spaces for one another, and I really, really um, value one another's presence and respect that. Uh, so yeah, I, I'm a firm believer that in, in, in their abilities and capabilities, as long as we nurture or develop those spaces continuously and sustainably. Thank you all so much for everything you've shared today. I know I have learned so much and I feel like this conversation could go on for another two hours and another two hours after that. But 
know, I truly appreciate you all being here with us and can't wait to share this information with our listeners. So thank you. Hello, listeners. We have a special announcement as we approach the end of Season 2. Our final episode will be dedicated to answering questions from you. So please send us any questions you have about the topics we have covered this season, and we will answer them and give you a shout-out during the last episode. Please send your questions to beyondfearpodcast at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you. Thank you again for listening to Beyond Fear the Sex Crimes podcast, a part of Article 3 Podcasting Network. Beyond Fear is written and hosted by Alexa Sardina and Alyssa Ackerman. All episodes are produced and edited by Christopher Antico. Remember, you can find our episodes on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and all other podcasting platforms. Head to our website at www.beyondfearpodcast.com for blog posts, resources, readings, and episode transcripts. Follow us on Twitter at Fear Crimes, Instagram at Beyond Fear Podcast, and like and follow our Facebook group called Beyond Fear the Sex Crimes Podcast.